0: Your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts, for they have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their souls, for their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but seek not to make them like you. For life goes not backward, nor tarries with yesterday. You are the bows from which your children, as living arrows, are sent forth. The archer sees the mark upon the path of the infinite, and he bends you with his might, that his arrows may go swift and far. Let your bending in the archer's hand be for gladness. For even as he loves the arrow that flies, so he loves also the bow that is stable. Hi there, it's Christine. Welcome back to the Rose Woman Pod. Now, that was written in the 30s, so forgive the gendering of divine consciousness. But what a beautiful idea that our kids have their own will, karma, intention, dharmic purpose, magic, and that we're here to get them as close as we can to their true expression and not to try to topiary them into something that looks good to us. Today, we're talking parenting, a subject near and dear to my heart. And my guest is Lindsay Powers. I was a young mom, started at 18 with my first son, Jared, being born just after uh, my 19th birthday. And then we had a couple more kids before I was 22, another 26. So basically raising the kids formed the shape of my life as a human being, in addition to all the other things that I had done. I tried so hard to give them the right formula love and affection and food and education and exposure to things and to bring them to their joy in a way. But there was so much pressure even at that time to do what was right. And what was right was very confusing because everyone seemed to have an opinion. And I believe in this era of social media and all of the changes that has wrought, the stridency around what is right is even greater than it it was when i was raising my crew and our our guest today has made a life of exploring that question her name is lindsay powers she's the author of you can't fuck up your kids a judgment free guide to stress free parenting she's a longtime journalist all the big names washington post new york times new york magazine yahoo good morning america cosmo the today show fox She was the founding editor-in-chief of Yahoo Parenting also, and recently ran Lifestyle and Entertainment at Sirius. So as the mother of two young children and the co-creator of the No Shame Parenting movement, she has a lot to say on this subject. So we're going to enjoy um, her expertise on how to navigate all of the things that are up for moms and dads today. Lindsay and I are coming to you this morning from opposite ends of America. I'm on an island in uh, off the coast of Seattle on this in the San Juan Islands, and she's on an island in New York State called... What is that? It's not exactly Manhattan.
1: Is Brooklyn an island? Brooklyn's an island. It's technically part of Long Island. Well, there you go.
0: So from <laughs> Long Island to Waldron Island, here we are. And we are talking parenting, um, a subject that has been you know, formative for both of our lives. I imagine I had my first kid at 19 and had four biological kids and then two stepdaughters and then influenced heavily a couple more kids. And now we have this amazing grandson Mason, who Lindsay knows personally because her son Everett and Mason go to school together. I am just so fortunate that my daughter Uh, happens to know the head of Yahoo Parenting, and uh, a world uh, sort of a a widely renowned expert on raising kids, and and is one of the founders of the No Shame Parenting movement. So we're so lucky to have you uh, on the conversation today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm eager to, to talk about it. I think it's a really important conversation. You know, how we raise kids, but more importantly, the idea that we can raise our kids a lot of different ways, and they can Thrive uh, and turn out really well.
0: Yeah, I think you. You. The book just came out in March, and it came out in the middle of COVID. And there, even in the middle of this, there are so many places where women, or you know, fathers or mothers, I guess, are raising an eyebrow and saying you're raising your child wrong, and as if they had some stake in it that was other than your stake. What do you do as a parent to sort of release the judgment? of other people? How do you hold your center?
1: Right. Um, It's a great question. And it's something I continually work at. You know, I wrote the book, You Can't F Up Your Kids, A Judgment-Free Guide to Stress-Free Parenting. And I would be lying if I said that I wasn't, you know, affected when somebody questioned my parenting decisions. And I think it comes down to the idea that we as parents want so badly to raise our kids well and it's so important to us because it's so personal. Um, And when people judge us, it's hard. But what I like to do is step back from that moment and try to look at the bigger picture. I kind of have a professional and a personal philosophy when it comes to raising kids and my professional philosophy philosophy comes from, you know, as you mentioned, I was the launch editor in chief of Yahoo parenting, I started the notion parenting movement alongside with my team, and that reached 170 million people across social media. And so that experience showed that it that it was really resonant, and you know, and speaking to experts and doctors and families, that people feel judged, and that we don't need to only raise our kids one way. And then, the, my personal philosophy came from having a really tumultuous childhood myself, and turning out mostly okay. And not that I want anyone to have a tumultuous childhood. And when I say that, I mean, I grew up with, you know, an abusive parent who is very mentally ill and a drug addict. And I always joke that like, I turned out mostly okay. But, um, you know, now I live in Brooklyn where parents are so hard on themselves, not unlike so many other cities and towns and areas across the country. And when I hear parents uh, just so hard on themselves because they're not doing infant flashcards or or they didn't buy the fanciest organic wood high chair, or their kids don't only eat organic food. I just I just know that these are things that are not going to be the ultimate determination on how our kids turn out. And through research, and through my own personal experience, but more importantly through research, I can say that kids really only need three things to thrive, and that is love. Um, which is like, if you care about how your kids are going to turn out, like you're probably pretty good on the, on the love factor, right? You're self-aware enough. You care enough about your kids, um, food, something to eat. This doesn't mean that, you know, chicken nuggets can't fall under that category. You can feed your kids a wide range of foods and they'll be fine. And the third thing is somewhere to sleep. You know, it doesn't need to be some, some mansion somewhere. They just need a nice, warm, cozy place. So love something to eat. And a, a warm, you know, cozy place to, to live and sleep. And and I think parents are way too hard on themselves um, otherwise. I,
0: I think that's beautiful that you've broken it down into those things. So let's go into love as an idea. So when I, I read this beautiful book by a man named Greg Bear called Unconditional Love and Parenting. And when I read it, the guy models like this affection for his child that is not disturbable by their behavior. Mm. So, um, when you talk about what it means to love a child and how to do that in the simplest uh, way, are there are, do you give any guidance on how to love them unconditionally versus love with performative requirements?
1: Yeah, I do. I talk a lot about how we as parents, our job is not to shape our children into mm. this perfect little object. Um, I wrote this op ed for The Washington Post about how our idea of success is all wrong. You know, our kids are not successful if they only achieve x, y, and z. Um, our Our job as parents is to help our children become the very best version of themselves, to give them the tools to realize who they are. Um, and you know, I don't want it to come off as like this unconditional love of our children is that we let them do whatever they want and we never uh, discipline them because um, that's not true either. I also talk a lot about the importance of routine with raising our children. And routine doesn't have to mean they go to bed at 8 p.m. on the dot every night, but it means that they know what their expectations are um, as a parent and a child. They know what the rules are. I mean, kids, they they need guidance and support and stability to a certain you know to a certain extent because that gives them uh, confidence in in who they are and what's next and safety and and that their parents love them um and i i think it's really important to 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 not try to shape our children and to to love them for who they are to set down ground rules and expectations and just help them thrive that way
0: Mm, I love that line about you're not shaping them into perfect little objects. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people who treat their kids as status symbols.
1: Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. And I I think that comes out of the fact, I don't think that parents wake up and they're like, man, I like, I'm going to be kind of a jerk to these other parents. I think it comes out of the fact that our society, it is really hard to raise children. Mm -hmm. And I won't get on a total social justice warrior bent, but I do think that you need to, that it needs to be acknowledged that in America, parents have very little support. We have no access to healthcare, we are guaranteed access, we have no paid family leave, we have just outrageously expensive childcare that can rival college tuition in all 50 states and mortgages and rents. So parents come into this world, they become parents in a world where it's really, really difficult. Um, So instead of kind of fighting these systemic issues, um, America's really set up for us as parents to feel like, well, this is our fault that we can't afford childcare. This is all uh, my fault that I can't breastfeed because I have to go back to work because I have to pay my rent or my mortgage. Um, And then it becomes like this personal failing of, of, and and this kind of war between parents of different races and socioeconomic backgrounds and regions and any kind of um, difference that parents have of I can't do this, so therefore I'm failing. But really, when you take a step back, you're like, well, a lot of people can't do X, Y, and Z. And maybe if we banded together to fight some of these systemic issues, there would be a whole lot of parent a whole lot less parent judgment in the world.
0: Oh, you're hitting on so many things in there, like the debate between organic food and non-organic food and the debate between the all wooden high chair and the plastic thing that off gases is very much a class problem.
1: Wow. Mm-hmm very it's much. It's not a that class
0: anybody class. anybody wants to do something that's less than optimal, but you know, really you you I'm so glad you raised that point that you know sometimes you just make do with what you have and you have to drop the sense of not being enough. So you're mm-hmm. really giving a very positive message when you're saying step back and feed them, love them, house them and 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 work for the best. But this this whole question of everybody thinks it's them applies to almost everything in the world right now it's not just to parenting and and this question of what exists in the individual what's our responsibility and what's the fabric of the society we've we've created Um, that's beautiful dialogue
1: thank you and i I think it's it's really important to keep in mind Um, you know in my book you can't f up your kids i go into history a little bit of how these parenting ideals have changed um, through history and then also kind of internationally, right? Because if there was one way to raise your kid, then you would have entire countries of children who would be screwed up, quote unquote, Mm. screwed up Mm. because Mm. people raise their kids so differently all over the place, which also allowed me kind of an interesting um, body of research as a result. Mm. So... For example, I have a chapter on pregnancy and I talk about all of the so-called pregnancy rules. And one of the things that parents are lectured about is drinking while pregnant. And I would never say like, get drunk every night, go crazy. But I think, you know, a parent that takes a sip out of, out of a partner's beer or has half a glass of wine after a really stressful day, um, or has a drink before they even know they're pregnant. It just is totally villainized. And so I was able to kind of look at these studies in Australia and in the UK where parents drink while they're pregnant. And and when you break down the science, you see that children who are born of parents who drink four to six drinks per week while pregnant actually have slightly higher IQs than parents who totally abstain. Now. This again, I'm not saying like, go out and get drunk. you're pregnant. yay. i um, i'm I'm saying that there's a lot of nuance in science. And what we take as um like this is the mu-, the the end all be all. Um, sometimes we have to say, well, who are they studying? Who are the people? What are Mm -hmm. their backgrounds? Um, I think breastfeeding, for example, is another really, really hot button topic and it's very classist and it can also be very racist with the way that it falls, with the way that criticism comes out. And um, when you look at the studies and when you strip out the people who were studied, when you strip out things like education level, socioeconomic level, which is the biggest thing, and just thing, you know, things along those lines, you see that there's like basically the only benefit to breastfeeding is that your kid may have one fewer um, tummy bug throughout their whole life. Not that I'm anti-breastfeeding because again, I, you know, I breastfed my kids a combined like 31 months together, You know, 16 months for my first one and 15 months for my second one. But I do think that it is enough to make us stop and question like these things were being judged over. Well, I love that
0: you're myth busting to a certain extent, the things that are judgments on the breastfeeding one in particular, what I find so interesting is when, uh, it was initial, when, when bottle feeding really became a viable option, when it became commercial, there was this time in history when you felt like you could solve a problem with technology and industry that, um, And it would not have a systemic impact. And so the very first bottles didn't have flexible nipples. And they also, Mm -hmm. and the very first formulas didn't have the right combinations of what a child needed. Like the nipple on a breast, when it's sucked in, stimulates a place in the soft palate that stimulates Mm -hmm. brain growth. Now you know, 30, 40 years into it, those nipples on the on the bottle that you get are super flexible, and they're shaped like the infant's mouth, and it's doing a lot of the same stimulation activity. And so it's mimicking more and more this miraculous interconnection between the mother and the baby. Um, So I do think that there's also sort of the evolution of the practices and alternates that a lot of the ideas where people said this is better, is based on what might have been better 20 years ago, but things have evolved.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, things really have evolved with technology. And I think breastfeeding is really fascinating because you can go back to biblical times and look at Moses being fed by a wet nurse and then look at... um, how during the industrial revolution it was more popular to breastfeed because women that couldn't breastfeed were those who were going to work and but then during like the victorian era it was more popular to have a wet nurse because the upper classes at that point wore fancy outfits and so breastfeeding was like much too complicated with your fancy outfits in your life of leisure um, so it's, you know, and even the mm. phrase that everybody uses now, that's like really just all over the place breast is best. The, the history of that is like, well, breast is better than what the animals that used to be used before formula was regulated. Um, you know, babies would be fed like goat milk and all kinds of random milks. And it was like, well, breast is better than those um, for just given, you know, the unique nutritional needs that that children that newborns have and you know I, I inner or I quote this um, this lactation consultant and as you know lactation consultants are obviously very pro breastfeeding because it is their livelihood but even you know she says that if every baby in the world had access to formula children wouldn't die and I think that's hugely important that there are there are women predominantly women of course who are just beating ourselves up so much because you know not being able to breastfeed exclusively for a number of different reasons you know ranging from they physically can't, to they don't want to, to any number of reasons, right? You shouldn't have to justify it. Um, But then it becomes like this totally judgy discourse. And so I I think like, if there's anything else that comes away from you can't F up your kids and any other message I ever want to get, get You can't F up your kids. They're resilient. They're they're nutritionally resilient. And and, And there's a million different ways to raise them and and for them to be fine.
0: Okay. So let's talk about the places where you can fuck up your kids. Sorry. Okay. Now, so but there are some places where people are inheriting, children are inheriting things from their parents, like racism and violence and abuse and things like that. Yeah. Um, so I think the, here, here's the question, how do you as a parent know when you really need to go to therapy so you don't pass <laughs> on these terrible behaviors that happen to you yeah. to another generation? versus um, just relax because you love them and you're feeding them. And how do you tell the difference?
1: That is a great question. First of all, I think we need to uh, de-stigmatize therapy because I think therapy is a great thing. Like why not talk to somebody and kind of sort out your issues? Everyone's got some kind of an issue. Doesn't mean we're effed up, you' just got an issue. Um, So in in the book, I list five things that can, in fact, screw up your kids. Um, And it's about one page long or page and a half long. And one of, you know, one of those things is abuse in any form. Like this, this isn't like, oh, you're overwhelmed and you scream once at your kid because they're like following you for four straight hours. This is like sustained abuse Um, that, of course, you need to stop and get help. Neglect. Again, this is not like I'm so busy at work, so I gave my kids, you know, a tablet or my phone to play with for two hours. Um, No, this is like sustained neglect, like you leave your kid alone for 10 hours a day and like leave the house. That is problematic and can screw up your kids. Um, Not vaccinating your children, again, can screw up your kids. Uh, Research is definitive on that. Smoking while pregnant, research is definitive, can have some issues. That said, if you are pregnant and listening to this, if you quit immediately, um, you the the great thing is that the benefits are immediate. Uh, so it's never too late. So there's like a handful of things that are, are bad. Um, I think racism is huge. Like this is something we as parents, it's our responsibility to talk to our kids about tolerance and acceptance. And we're never too young. We're never too young to spread. message of kindness and tolerance and acceptance and friendship um so i think you know there are some serious things that parents should do and there are a lot of things that parents don't need to worry about and if you are questioning like hey is this problematic, then what do you lose by, by talking to someone? I know therapy can be really expensive for some people. It's certainly an entry to barrier or barrier to entry rather. And in that case, I recommend, um, you know, an app like better help or Talkspace, which has a flat fee, speaking to a clergy member, a trusted friend, someone that you can just, um, you know, a partner, if you have one, um, just, just, getting a second opinion and talking through some of your concerns. Yeah. I think Someone told me helpful. once
0: um, that if you're a, a father-to-be, that your number one job is to resolve all of your own daddy issues before the baby's born, <laughs> 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 which I loved. I thought that was a great, great advice. Yeah, so that you step into it in the pure peace and power of you. Anyway, I, love that. Um, I think in this question, I want to go back to what you were saying about the culture that supports parents and really supports bringing in a generation that can love and work and find their passion and be happy and be healthy and be whole. Like if we want that as a culture, what would you like to see happen in the fabric between us to um, to ensure that?
1: I would like our culture to accept that caregiving is a legitimate job, mm, um, whether okay. that's... Amen. A teacher a daycare provider a parent i think that throughout all of human history it has been written off as women's work and therefore it has not been it's been given short shrift. um so i i think that is something we as a society need to ask ourselves I, I wrote this op-ed for yahoo saying that all parents who are teaching this fall should be paid pay us like you want us to do it pay us and i got so many hateful emails and comments about how why did i become a parent if i wanted to be paid and i just thought you know what like here we are in the middle of a global pandemic i'm balancing my full-time job uh promoting my book my husband also works my children you know the fabric of our society was essentially ripped apart very quickly our daycare providers closed our schools closed everything it's like yeah i became a parent but like not to do three full-time jobs at once plus the kids and You know, so I think that we need to value caregiving.
0: Yeah, what are you learning in the pandemic period from other parents about, I want to say caregiving, but also about this idea of being your child's first teacher with Mm -hmm. this homeschooling. I saw a funny meme that was going around where she's figured out how to handle her child during her conference calls and he's taped to the floor with duct tape. (laughs) (laughs) Not recommended. It was a joke to point out, you know, the difficulty of trying to do both. Uh, I was listening to my my colleague had a a Zoom call yesterday and a a woman's baby woke up from their nap. And while she was in the middle of her presentation and started crying and everybody on the phone was very uh, receptive and supportive. But the idea that you, your employees, your colleagues all have families, all have home lives, like they've never really been in your face before. And now in this new model, you're really seeing what everyone's juggling. Do you think that the culture will learn um, just what it's like to have all of these responsibilities and change as a result?
1: I hope so. Um, I think there are some benefits. Uh, right. I, I was on a conference call this morning and my four year old came marching up and he was really proud that he'd like made this toy. So I just like picked him up on my lap so he could like show it to the Zoom call. Um, so I think that's a benefit. But I, I do think that, um, you know, people who are affluent enough to be able to like have jobs to work from mm-hmm. home, I think mm-hmm. they'll see the bulk of the cultural shift. I mean, I think mm-hmm. there's A whole, there's just a lot of people right now who have been uh, forced out of the workplace, especially women. You know, I just covered a report from the UN yesterday that said women could see any race of a generation's worth of gains because Mm. women are more likely to be employed in fields that have been more seriously impacted by coronavirus, uh, whether that's service fields such as working in a restaurant or a hotel or a store um, or just. Mm. By like not um, being able to have childcare, and there was also you know a whole swath of of our, our population that are that's back in work in person. I mean, our our amazing first responders and grocery store workers, frontline workers, and you know they're in a particularly hard place because what do you do with your kids then? And and I think that's something that's really huge. I think this pandemic has taken all of these issues that parents have faced for a long time that we've all kind of like quietly struggled with on the background right of mm-hmm. stitching together childcare and throwing so much money into it and you know one parent usually the woman steps out of the workforce and loses you know her career track and all of these things um but the pandemic's like blown them into into like the forefront of our conversation and to visibility and i i hope that it sparks a lot of conversations because i i think that these conversations are really important because words are are important they 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 can spark change so we're, we're designing a new culture from the ground Perfect. up
0: and in this new culture of which Lindsay is in charge of designing <laughs> the parenting part. <laughs> okay. So you're designing this new world and where, at what scale do you organize? Do you organize it at the community scale, at the mm-hmm. city scale, at the, at the state scale, at the federal scale, like where do you see uh, the most design potential? Um, is it through companies and corporations? I mean, I wouldn't rely on that personally, but possibly. So what's the organizing framework for making a culture that works for everyone?
1: Yeah, I th- I think that's a great question. Um, I'm not a policymaker, so I'm sure, you know, I will fumble this question somehow, the answer to this question somehow.
0: But there are no wrong of- answers. No shame <laughs> interviewing. I'm <No>, sorry. <laughs>
1: Um, I love that I so I don't I do not think it should be at a company level. I think it would be really unfortunate that like a parent would be stuck at a certain role or job because their childcare is connected to it. Mm. I think we've seen major issues with that and their and healthcare right now. Um, Mm. I, I do think that there should be choice for parents to me like modern day feminism and supporting parents is to to give choice because some parents want to work you know to stay home work from home with their children some parents want to have a career some parents want a little bit of both um so i think that i would would create you know uh from a federal perspective i would pay child care providers more teachers should be earning more money child care providers daycare workers nurseries nannies should be making more money that should be subsidized by the government It should be from a young age and i think that paid family leave should be mandated for men and women i think as long as first of all there's no paid family leave it's only like six percent of americans have access to it which is just insane um but as long as there's as only women take paid family leave it's always going to be written off as just like this women's thing um so i think if companies uh, you know, we've seen success is is countries that that will give parents like sixty weeks of paternity and maternity leave, and but they uh, mandate that men and women need to split it. So, I, I I think we just need to, at a really young age, shift the culture um, and to to provide funding on a federal government le- level so that it's not like. New York is a more progressive state, so we have better child care policies, whereas Texas is a red state, so they have worse child care policies. Like, that's just not fair, you know? Uh, so, I, I, I think at a federal level, we fund health care, paid family leave, mandated for men and women, and then uh, subsidize child care.
0: I like that you're addressing the policy question. Because it goes back to this idea of what's the space between us and how to take the pressure off mom who's on her way to school with a runny nose kid and has an appointment um, for her work and you know, dad is home trying to like have a look dignified uh on a Zoom call and front for his colleagues. You know, like while they're trying to get all this stuff done, they're not alone. And right. that that dialogue's important.
1: Well, and I think that the policies that I'd mentioned sound really radical right now because it's so different than what we live. But now you go back to the 30s when Social Security and Medicare became a thing. Uh, People thought that was outrageous at the time, you know. Um, And now imagine saying, well, we're going to take Social Security or Medicare away. I mean, it's after you kind of can enact these policies, then they become part of the fabric of the culture, and people see the benefits of them. So, I don't think that progress is linear, but I do think that we can we can do it, um, and I hope we do. Okay, let's go back to the
0: personal. Thank you for that. Oh, let's go back to the personal. So, when. What are the most common things that you find? Like, I I think food, for example, or screen Mm -hmm. time is another where there's a lot of judgment. What What are you hearing? What are the top hot buttons that parents are rolling their eyes at each other about?
1: So right now in COVID era, it's school. School is by far the most judgy discourse that I've seen. If you're gonna go back in person, if you're gonna do virtual schooling, if your school's gonna have a mask mandate, it's parents are or if you're going to pod podding is so judgy which and the idea of podding is that um, you partner together with maybe like another family or two families or three families and you hire your own teacher so the only families that could really afford to pod are families that have the resources and the money to be like now we will hire a teacher for our three children um so people are just like so mean i'm in this local parenting group and my neighborhood in Brooklyn, and the owner of it, it's all over email, and the owner of it had to, um, once the school date start was pushed back, had to get on email and say, everybody, stop. I paused emails. You, Everybody needs to reread the emails that they're sending with a critical eye and then decide if you wanna send them out because people were screaming at each other so much. Um, so that's kind of like our new COVID one. But then there's plenty of other topics that are like perennial judgment things, as you mentioned, like screen time, food, discipline. Um, Where do you stand on those? I am. Um, well, the one thing I should say is I'm not opposed to changing my mind. And I argue it in my book, right? Your life changes, your situation changes. Before, you know, I've always been like relatively lax on screen time. You know, I don't let my kids watch like 10 hours a day of it. And in fact, right in the beginning of the of COVID, when we were all kind of freaking out, I did at one point just hand my kids a tablet. And I think, you know, they watched it for the first day for five hours or some outrageous amount. And they were just like lunatics after. So I was like, well, just by necessity, not like my own, you know, upstanding like screen time <laughs> beliefs. Like my kids cannot watch screen time all day unless I want little maniacs. Um, but, you know, I've, I've always been relatively um, relaxed on screen time because I do see there are benefits. And I, I cite some of the benefits in my book that research mm-hmm. has shown. They help, you know, uh, screens can help connect people, which is more important than ever right now when so many of us are disconnected from our villages and our communities as we quarantine and limited our, our interactions during COVID, um, even though we're all pretty sick of Zoom. But, you know, there are benefits. That um, can also be learning. You know, a lot of this when kind of this anti-screen t- time discourse first started it was like when you would just sit and like stare at a screen like i grew up um spending summers with my grandparents watching the prices right i'm like i you know i turned out fine whatever but my kids now watch more mm-hmm. interactive apps and games and shows um, mm-hmm. that do cause them to think a little bit so I'm, you know, I'm I'm pretty chill on screen time. I think right now we're in the middle of a global pandemic and and there is literally no way we're going to look back in 10 years and be like, man, you know, I really wish that my kids watched a little bit less uh, Paw Patrol during that nationwide global pandemic situation. Um, So I think we need to be a little kinder, you know, to ourselves on that.
0: (laughs) You make it sound so easy just be kinder they watch a little more who cares take the big picture it's a it's an 18 to 25 year legacy people
1: (laughs) i you know i find that um by taking the big picture it's a lot easier to be a parent because i don't think that my children are going to be screwed up for the end of time because they watched a little bit of tv i think I love them. I think they have plenty of food. They're so lucky to have, you know, a bed, their own bed to sleep in every night. And so I'm just like, you know, they're going to be fine. Um, and I really carry that that general belief that the optimism that our kids are going to be fine above all else in my head.
0: I love that. So you mentioned before experts mm-hmm. and consulting experts, and and all I could think about was. The decades uh, of Dr. Spock, yeah, you know, where it became the Bible. And there was or like in the Victorian era where you weren't supposed to show any physical affection and treat them like little soldiers, and sort of how these things go through phases of of being in fashion. And I and you said something early in the conversation on becoming self-referential and tuning into what you know and what your children need. And I wonder if you could just speak to the balance between expertise and intuition.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think that you need to be careful who you decide is an expert. You know, a doctor is an expert. Your pediatrician, though, is, is more relevant and a better expert in your life than some doctor who wrote a book that's not relevant to your life. Because your pediatrician knows you. You talk with him or her. They have helped you raise your children. You know, medical advice has to work in, within the context of your life. Um, when, When you look at who is named an expert in our society, you see there's so many interesting ulterior motives that these experts have, whether it's religion, you know, I, I, there's this, there's this really popular parenting book called like becoming baby wise and it's people love it. And, but that's actually the commercial name of it. The first name of it was something like raising your child in Jesus's eyes to like love God or like just something that was like super religious and I'm not anti-religion I think anything you can build anything in your life that brings purpose and community is amazing but the fact of the matter is like there's kind of a lot of like religious and patriarchal and classist and sexist um uh, undertones to a lot of this expert advice so that's when i say intuition is really important you may have 10 people tell you that you need to feed your kid x y and z but if if that ingredient doesn't grow where you live like how can you do that you know that's out of your control so you have to say well like intuitively it makes sense for me to raise my kid this way and you can you can be steadfast in that decision and then when you learn more, you can change, right? When we know better, we do better, um, as Maya Angelou once said. Um, so I just, I think it's really important to trust ourselves and to have experts that we can trust, like our pediatrician or a local doctor um, and use that to inform our intuition.
0: Great. That's great. I, I think there's. I've also been so lucky over the years to get little tiny pieces of advice that have stuck with me and this gets to the, the next question on when you need to like perk up and pay attention that there is something going on with your kid. There was a, I remember when Kyle, my third child was little, you know, he would come in the door from school and he like third grade ish and collapse at the front door crying and mad and all kinds And I'm like, what is going on with him? And an older woman told me, Oh, If he's getting reports of being ill behaved from school, but he's perfect at home, that's when you have to worry. But if he's fine at school and he comes home and collapses, it's because he's safe there. And I I was like, oh, that's such a sweet answer. I love that. And it turns out that he was really stressed at school. And this is the place that he could kind of let down his guard. Uh Um, But, you know, even that was a pointer to going in and investigating sort of why he was stressed out at school and what happened with this new teacher and blah, blah, blah. But um, so talk a little bit about what what are the red flags Mm -hmm. for when to perk up and pay attention that there might be something going on with your kid?
1: I, I think the biggest thing is that, you know, your kid you know, when Kyle was just was showing you these behaviors, you were like, "Hey, that's that's like that kind of like sparked your interest." You were like, "This is unusual. Let me look into it." And so I think that's really key. If if there is something that's nagging you, like you know, my kid's behavior changed really quickly, or yeah. uh, you know, like they just seem different, then. I don't think that's a bad thing to to investigate a little bit with an open mind, right? Like you spoke to his teacher and and learned from there, and then you're able to kind of make an informed decision. I think for us, red flag wise, it's it's really being in touch with our intuition. And I know that it's so much easier when I can say like, oh, well, when your kid. Does this specific thing? That's bad. No, I mean, I think you know your kid. Their behavior changes. You listen to your intuition. If something's nagging you, it doesn't hurt to put a phone call into your pediatrician, um, and to trust yourself to know uh, when something seems a little off. I there's no way that we can that that we can like guess every single thing with our child. But I think also just maintaining a relationship with them, an open dialogue, it goes back to kind of establishing this unconditional love with our kids. We give them the space to come Mm. to us when something feels different and wrong. Mm. And we tune in when they do take advantage of that.
0: Mm. I love that. So when you're you're sitting there, it gets to be too much for you. Mm. Do you have other moms and dads that you guys can lean into like parenting co-op or how do you find the space for self-care in the middle of all the things you're doing with little children?
1: Oh, well, this is the big problem with um, the pandemic right now is I, I had my village ripped out from underneath me, which really sucks. There's like no way to sugarcoat it. You know, I, I could I could go next door to, to your daughter's house and say, hey, can you take my kids for a minute? Or I could take your grandson for a minute and go to the park. You know, I... I have this great group of friends that nearby me in Brooklyn and we all really supported each other. We would get together and talk and, um, you know, and I go to Pilates once a week and read a lot of books. And I just had a much richer community before um, this happened. And not to mention that I paid for amazing childcare before this happened. Um, whether through my taxes for the local elementary school or for the, the daycare that my younger son went to, that was incredible. Um, and all of that, poof, is gone. So self-care is really hard right now and I find myself getting really stressed about it. So I, I try to find like little mini pockets. Um, I'm lucky enough where, you know, to be to have a good partner who will step in. So my husband will, um, I can kind of say like, I'm overwhelmed, like I need to go um, sit and drink a glass of wine six feet away from one of my girlfriends tonight. And he'll be like, great, I'll do bedtime. Um, Vice versa, Or like, you know, once I just got like super stressed and was like, I'm done and just like went upstairs to our bedroom and closed the door for 20 minutes and didn't look at my phone, just kind of stared off into the wall. And that's when I had this realization that during pandemic times, my goal is to be the uh, quote unquote world's okayest mom, not like the (laughs) most amazing mom. There's no such thing. And we can't be perfect Uh anyway. Um, I saw that. 20. I saw
0: that. The world's mo- okayest mom. I love that so much. I'm like, yeah, that's probably the world's best mom. Because if you're that chill, <laughs> if you're that chill, that you're chill with being okay, you're probably the best. Um, but this know, space, no. sort of like, that's really nice that you have your spouse to balance it off. That's beautiful. I can not imagine being a single mom in these times. That would be also much more difficult. But also, what a toll on your marriage, you know, not necessarily oh, yeah. yours, but on the intimacy and the sexy romantic part about being like turned on by your partner and like where's the space for that if you're always trading off duty Um,
1: so exhausting
0: right I'm I'm gonna send you some products and (laughs) I don't know what we're gonna do to get you a babysitter for the evening
1: (laughs) you're so funny um I you know I have a whole chapter um, in my book about sex and I we talk a lot I talk a lot about the um importance of scheduling it and I don't know because I feel like your products are so. Um, I. Well, I don't know. Maybe are you are you against the idea of scheduling sex?
0: No way. I love. I mean,
1: it, for me, first of all, the products
0: are about y- you for you, like that you take care of yourself. You know what you desire. You touch yourself. You take care of your skin, and then a side benefit of feeling great in your own body and feeling comfortable is that you might be more aroused or turned on or available to someone else. So a lot of it is reclaiming sovereignty over your own body, but you know, saying to be conscious of like having date night and creating magic and making play and scheduling sex is like, that's exciting. That can be great. It's like creating a sacred time for yourself so I have no problem with scheduling. It's nice when it's spontaneous (laughs) but when you're running three businesses and even if you don't have little kids at home, it can be hard to find the time. But I find like if I have a spot that's like set aside for that and then I can pre-plan like creating a little delight. Like sometimes we'll not only have a A date night or a sex date will have a, like, who's in charge of that one? Mm -hmm. And then you just, like, wait back, uh, lay back and wait to be delighted by whatever they have got in store. (laughs) And that's so fun, too, because it takes all the pressure off. And then, Mm -hmm. of course, if the day comes and it's just been like, you know, you're blown out or whatever, then you fall back into that loving tolerance of what is.
1: But in general, I like it. yeah. I, I think that the whole like loving tolerance in whatever context is kind of like the name of the game right now. You know, <laughs> like We're all meeting each other at different places, mentally, physically. Um, and I think it's hard. I will it's say that on the pod thing, you
0: talked about like the potting. Um, I'll tell you a little narrative from where we live in Venice. Um, the houses that are on either side of us. Venice is is a little bit like Brooklyn, but you know people are also very busy with their careers. And when, when people um, ended up having to stay home, the four houses in a row on our street got together and said, if you guys all follow protocol for the next 14 days, then we can all share our gifts. And like one's a vegan chef and one's a yoga teacher. And they got some weightlifting equipment from a gym that was going under and put it in the backyard and basically created like a micro clean zone. Among uh-huh. the neighborhood and one of the side benefits was really getting to know their neighbors and our neighbors in a new way for, uh-huh. for all their, we would have paid for all those things before. And, right. um, and so they did create a micro safe zone that I don't think is real is necessarily class oriented or economic oriented, but a willingness to cooperate.
1: Yes, I agree. I think that is beautiful that that was able to happen. And I also have a good friend, Um, And then one of their friends, and they have kind of, you know, figured out a way to make it work uh, with schooling and together, and it's not a classes thing. And, you know, so I do think there are ways to make it work, but um, how it's kind of being marketed now, you know, I think like with anything, right, it's hard to make sweeping statements of something, but um, a lot of the potting situations now have to do with, with um, having the resources to be able to hire an educator, which can be tough because, Not everybody does.
0: And we'll get through this time, even while we're in it, talking to our kids about how this is an unusual time and something has happened and there was a time before this and there will be a time after this so that they understand that what's happening is unusual. Already they're getting, you know, kids are having some side effects from having to stay home. We're not good as physical activity or as much socialization and particularly adolescents, right? In the time when they're supposed to be differentiating from their parents and getting out and spending time with their friends and becoming the what's the core jobs of adolescents? becoming and belonging and becoming becoming themselves, like they're stuck at home with their parents. Oh, my God. So (laughs) even helping them to frame that this is an unusual time is a quality of this intimacy and transparency that you can have with your kids. It's not just take it and try to fix it, but enroll them in understanding what's happening, I guess.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like keeping in, in the perspective of this won't be forever. And maybe it is an opportunity to rebuild certain things. Um, I think with COVID, I mean, it is soul crushing um, on one level to be stuck inside your house. And have your social life disrupted and all these awful things. It's devastating the, the deaths and sicknesses that, you know, so much trauma that people have experienced. Um, but I think it's also given people more like compassion, some people more compassion to to care for our neighbors and to speak out on on racial injustice and these really kind of important things that we need to be doing in our society. So I think... There are good things, there are bad things, like with all things in life. Um, But I do agree that we're gonna find a new normal. This isn't forever. And it's hard to keep that perspective. I mean, I get down, especially with school and juggling school and work. And, um, but it's, it's like having guardrails with yourself. When do I need to talk to somebody? When do I need to get help? When do I need a break? And really honoring those boundaries.
0: And when can I just throw pillows and say, you know, have some fun and be like, ah, everyone letting everything else go today?
1: Yeah, you know? I know. I I understand. I okay. I really feel for the kids.
0: Um and I feel for the young moms. So <laughs> that shows where my empathy is gone. Like, oh my god, that must be so hard. Um, no, there is a lot of magic. So I love your message. Uh you can't fuck up your kids. I love the message of no shame. I love the message of no judgment, all the stuff that you're that you're talking about. And you have a really active online community uh, and places that you're doing interviews.
1: So if you go to at No Shame Parenting on Instagram, Facebook, um, and Twitter, technically, but I'm not as much on that. So at No Shame Parenting on Instagram, mostly a little bit on Facebook, you will see uh, my stories of my imperfect life and stories of, People near and far.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much for the work you do uh, for easing the experience of bringing new beings into the world uh, for fathers and mothers. And because every time you're doing that, you're planting a seed of more compassion that gets into the children and everybody they touch are infected by it. So, this loving compassion that's inherent in don't fuck up your kids (laughs) or you can't fuck up your kids is beautiful. Thank um, you. So I we'll we'll that. attach the links to this uh, for everybody who's listening, so they can find all that stuff. And if you have any questions or feedback, um, please reach out to Lindsay directly. She's made her life in this, and we're lucky to have her expertise and her brilliant mind asking these kinds of questions. All okay. right, everybody. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Christine. Thank you so much.
0: So you may know that in 2018, I wrote a book called Bending the Bow and it profiled the inner lives of great activists. And I went back and chose the great progressive movements of the last couple hundred years, women's rights, children's rights, sexuality and gender rights, native rights, all of those kinds of things, and looked at people who were really doing the good work 20 or 30 years before a movement became fashionable or mainstream. In that book, there's a chapter called I Am More Than My Age. And it's a profile of Florence Kelly and the children's rights movement. I'm going to share with you the intro to that section now um, as a bit of a codicil to this chapter on parenting, um, and more of a philosophical statement on children as a continuation of life itself that they're not standalone little beings. They are a continuation of the evolutionary story of all of mankind. And they have rights. In fact, they have more rights than uh, us because we are inviting them into the world and creating the space for them to thrive. And what is our responsibility truly besides loving and feeding them to leaving them a good legacy? So here you have it. I'm more than my age from bending the bow. I remember sitting in my bedroom in the heat of a July summer afternoon, with the gauze curtains barely moving in the breeze, gazing at my newborn son, the pure potential within him, the joy of life arising where there had been none before, wondering who he would become. I had many dreams for him, that he would love and be loved, that he would inhabit the fullness of his gifts and talents, that he would find meaning and happiness. At no point in welcoming this child into the world did I imagine a life where he would be enslaved or forced to labor at menial tasks for the majority of his life. I had a limited conception while I was beginning the research on the children's rights movement of just how bad things were for kids only a century ago. Even today, many people don't think of children as humans in full, but as manipulable creatures, free labor, or chattel. Some do give lip service to the idea that children have rights, but go on to minimize certain groups of children like poor children or minority children or foreign children because of their origin in an already unprotected class. These children are then trafficked for work and sex, uneducated, physically abused. This is the ultimate example to me of greed and self-abnegation, a denial of the genetic and social pyramid that suggests ongoing improvements for each generation on earth, that they're climbing higher than we are, yet that is what we do collectively, pass on our traumas in addition sometimes to our hope and our invitation to greatness. As recently as the 1780s, a child in European society was the property of his or her parents, a tertiary kind of person and not a very valuable one at that. Judith Inuit, Cultural Survival says, according to Blackstone's 1758 legal commentaries in England, for instance, child abduction was not theft in the legal sense unless the child happened to be dressed The thief was regarded as having stolen the clothes. Apart from that, child theft was tantamount to stealing a corpse. In the case of both a dead body and a live child, no legal person was involved. In the West, we have seen a relatively minor sense of children being part of the collective emerge. We educate them publicly, if unequally, and attempt to offer care for the hungriest and most abused. Yet for the most part, children today have little voice in their own care and representation. In this blind spot of under 18, a child's reality is barely visible to the outsider. And even if a child's environment is visibly unpleasant, unless the situation involves criminal negligence, and often not even then, neither the state nor neighbors intervene. And in this twilight space, parents inflict every manner of emotional and psychological damage and transgenerational entrainment on their children, often passing on the patterns of what was done to them whether unconsciously or willingly, citing custom, values, discipline, or control. Adults frequently usurp a child's bodily sovereignty through corporal punishment, physical restraint, forced feeding, denied feeding, even genital mutilation for both boys, circumcision, and girls, clitorectomies. And in extreme cases, this physical domination leads to sexual abuse or other forms of abuse. Adults murder, maim, and traumatize children in warfare, whether the war is at a nation-state level or class, race, or gender war level, like the war on black boys in America. And more subtly, some adults speak to their children in ways that diminish and shame them, behavior that has been shown to cauterize the developing brain's linguistic processing centers. The Jehovah's Witnesses don't allow kids to sing. The Baptists don't allow dancing. And there are indirect violations as well. Adults as a whole are burdening younger generations with crushing debts, from environmental degradation to massive government financial obligations to species extinction. The list goes on. Today, I contend we are just at the outset of the children's rights movement, a movement that began in the late 1800s, saw its first victory with the child labor laws of the 1920s and continues to strengthen. The children's rights movement, like the other movements we look at, has been gradually awakening to the power, wonder, beauty, awe of all life and represents a worldview that moves us more toward justice and peace for all. As a mother and as a person who believes in self-determination, as a citizen of Earth, I imagine a world where children are treated as the ultimate fruits of our own lives. They represent evolution of life on this planet and deserve to be treated as humans in full with well-defined rights and fully endowed futures. Thank you so much for joining me on the Rose Woman Pod. I'm Christine Marie Mason, your host. The pod is brought to you by Rosebud Woman, a company I started in the intimate skincare space. You can find our amazing products at rosewoman.com. Vegan, plant-based, pure, effective, all the good stuff. The guests and I imagine people out there when we do these shows and think, how can we bring one little bit of insight, one little lever to create more spaciousness or happiness out to the world. So if you like the pod, you know what to do. Please share it, rate it, review it, subscribe, all of that stuff so that we can feel your love and support and keep doing it. Have a wonderful day no matter where you're at. May the grace and joy that rests at the center of you be readily apparent.